In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. Today, through the grace of God, we will study chapter 7 from the Gospel of St. Matthew. This chapter actually is the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mountain. As you know, the Sermon on the Mountain uh, is written in chapter 5, 6, and 7. So this chapter is the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mountain. The summary of the chapter, in the beginning, the Lord explained to us the nature of judging that is condemned by God. Not every, not every judgment is condemned by God, but as we will explain, what, what is the nature of judgment that's condemned by God, this will be explained. Then the Lord Jesus Christ explained to us the golden rule in dealing with others, which actually is totally different than whatever mentioned in any other religion on earth. And the conclusion of the chapter is the importance of doing the will of the Father to be saved. The importance of doing the will of the Father to be saved. The theme of the Sermon on the Mountains is the righteousness of the kingdom, righteousness of the kingdom of God. In the previous chapters, he discussed our relation with God and also our relation with one's self. In this chapter, actually, he will discuss our relation with other people. So from verse 1 to 6, he will speak about judging others. From 7 to 11, the Lord speaks about the importance of persistence. Then the golden rule in dealing with one another, verse 12. Then from verse 13 and verse 14, the Lord actually explains about the two ways to the kingdom, the narrow way and the difficult way. On one hand, and the broad way and the wide gate on the other hand. Then from verse 15 to 20, warning against false prophets and teachers. From verse 21 to 23, doing the Father's will. And he concluded by being doers of the word, not only hearers of the word. So let's start verse by verse. Verse 1. Judge not that you be not judged. For with what judgment you judge, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. Actually, one of the most common phrases we hear it here from our children 
don't judge. And I think this word has been abused here in this country. Don't judge. Has been abused and misinterpreted. Because if God doesn't want us to judge at all, then how can we watch for the false teacher to say this is a false teacher this is a judgment or when St. Paul said bad company corrupts good moral to judge and say this is a bad company that's judgment so does this verse means you should not judge at all? Of course not. That's why I like to explain what is the nature of judgment that the Lord Jesus Christ told us not to do. First, I will explain when we need to judge. We must judge ourselves and judge our own acts. Also, civil judgment of the courts upon evildoers, this is approved throughout the whole Bible, in Old Testament and in New Testament, as we read in Romans chapter 13, St. Paul said that the, the, the king or the ruler does not carry the sword in vain, but to avenge the evildoers. So the civil judgment is not prohibited. Also, the judgment of the church, as St. Paul exercised this, in 1st Corinthians chapter 5 when he heard about the man who committed sexual immorality with his father's wife and St. Paul actually judged him and he excommunicated him and he instructed the people not to eat or to communicate with such a man and by the way excommunication during the time of the apostles and early church doesn't mean no communion only but excommunication means no communication with this person at all now excommunication means he does not take communion only but in the early church as it's clear from 1st Corinthians chapter 5 St. Paul told them don't eat or drink or communicate with this person. And judging sins and judging evil deeds, judging false teaching, we are required to do this. In Galatians, St. Paul told us, if anybody, even if an angel from heaven came to you with a different teaching 
let him be accursed. So it is clear here that God doesn't want us to walk blind. Actually, it is a sign of spiritual maturity to be able to discern between good, good and evil, as we read in Hebrews chapter 5. Those who are spiritually mature can discern between good and evil. So, what kind of judgment we should not do? It is a judgment when we elevate ourselves above others. When I feel that I am better than others, I am righteous and you are a sinner. And I judge you because I feel that I am righteous and you are a sinner. This kind of judgment is prohibited. But actually, in the same chapter, Matthew chapter 7, the Lord told us to judge the people by their fruits. From their fruits, you shall know them. So he asked us to look at the fruit to say whether this person is a false teacher or a true teacher. So when he told us, don't judge, he is speaking about the impulsive, reckless, uncharitable judgment. Some people have the spirit of fault-finding. They want to see something wrong, and they search for what is wrong and what's negative to speak about. Some people have this tendency to condemn others without examining the situation or hearing all the sides. So God prohibits us from the unkind judgment of others. St. Paul, when he judged the man in Corinth, as he wrote in 2 Corinthians, he wrote the excommunication with tears with sorrow. And after he excommunicated him, he didn't have peace in his heart. And he sent to Titus to search for this man. And when he heard about his repentance, he wrote another letter to the church at Corinth to ask them to accept this man and to show him love and acceptance. So here when God told us, don't judge, he's speaking about the unkind judgment of others. And he told us, with the same measure you use, it will be used to you. So if we are unkind, unmerciful, when we judge others, then in the last day, in the day of judgment, we will not find kindness or uh, mercy. There is no mercy 
for those who were not merciful. As St. Paul told us, whatever a man sows, that shall he also reap. So if we dealt with others with kindness, we will reap kindness. If we dealt with others harshly, then in the judgment day, there will be no mercy. Then verse 3, he told us, And why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not consider the plank in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me remove the speck from your eye, and look, a plank is in your own eye. Hypocrite, first remove the plank from your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Now it became clearer what kind of judgment the Lord is prohibiting us. When we are much more quick and acute to judge small offenses in others, while we have large offenses in our lives and we don't pay attention to them. The speck is the small offenses that we are very critical about them. And the plank or the beam is the large offenses in ourselves that we are totally blind to them. So, if I am blind because there is a plank in my eye, a beam in my eye, how can I show the way of life to others? That's why the Lord told us, remove first the plank from your own eye. Then, you will be able to see well to help your brothers kindly. And he told him, he told those people who judge others for small offenses, he told them hypocrite. Because the man who finds fault with, an, with another while I am guilty of a larger sin, that's hypocrisy. It is hypocrisy. So the best way to judge the imperfections of others when we are free from greater ones ourselves. The best way to judge the imperfections of others is to be free from greater offenses ourselves. Then, verse 6, he told us, Don't give what is holy to the dogs, nor cast your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet and turn and tear you in pieces. Dogs in the Jewish uh, culture refers to the unbelievers. 
And swine refer to the sinners. I'm sure you remember the story when the Lord said to the Canaanite, it is not good to take the bread of the children and give it to the dogs. Here dogs refer to the non-believers. Also, St. Paul, in his letter to Philippians, when he say, watch dogs, of course he doesn't ask us to, to watch animals, but he was speaking for, about the non-believers. Also in the book of Revelation, when we read that outside heavenly Jerusalem, the dogs, there is no animals in heaven, but the dogs here means the non-believers. So in the Jewish uh, culture, they used to refer to the non-believers by the word the dogs because the non-believer were considered unclean and the dogs one of the unclean animals. The swine refers to the sinners. St. Peter said, a person who returns back to his sin like a swine who actually uh, goes to the mud after uh, it is clean. So here the Lord is telling us, don't give what is holy to the non-believers and don't put your pearls before the sinners. What is holy refers to the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, Communion, Eucharist, the body and the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. They cannot take communion those who are not believers and also those who abide in sin, who live sinful life, a sin, sinful life and refuse to repent. So if somebody refuses to repent and insists on a sinful lifestyle, he cannot take communion. Uh, and the Lord told us, don't give them or don't put the holy in front of them, lest they trample under them they trample them under their foot, feet and turn and tear you in pieces. The characteristic of dogs is brutality. So, the Lord is telling us, don't try to instill holy things into such low, unclean and brutal minds because offering them what's holy will be useless. Uh, the swine will not be able to see how precious the pearls are. And most probably they will trample them under their feet and then actually they will attack you and tear you in pieces. There are some people who are senseless 
and dull and reject the pearl of truth, when you, you, you tell them the truth, they attack you and they defame you. Yes, it is our duty to help others and to try to save others, but we need to be wise and use common sense. That's why the Lord said to the disciples, if any city did not accept you, leave the city. Even the dust that clung to your feet wiped against them. You cannot force righteousness. You cannot force repentance on somebody. Verse 7, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks it will be opened. So the Lord here is using three different forms of seeking. Asking, seeking, and knocking. Actually, this verse signify to seek with earnestness, diligence, perseverance, persistence. So ask, seek, and knock means earnest prayer. We ask for what we wish and we seek for what we miss and we knock for that from which we feel ourselves shut out. We ask for what we wish, we seek for what we miss, and we knock for that from which we feel ourselves shut out. Ask as a bigger, ask alms. Seek as a merchant man that seeks pearls in the oceans. Knock because the sin shut the door against us. So knocking means the, the desire to enter into the house, the house of God, to return back, to enter into his kingdom. God assured us that whoever asks, he will receive. Whoever seeks, he will find. And whoever knocks, it will be open to him. So, God here is assuring us of the success of our believing efforts. Yes, we must seek with the proper spirit, with humility, with sincerity, with perseverance, with persistence. And when we ask, we must ask the things which is consistent for God to give. The things that he promised to give us. 
trusting that he will do what's best for us. And even when he says no, this will be best, the best for us. Then the Lord, in order to assure us that when we ask, we receive, and when we seek, we will find, and when we knock, it will be open to us, he made a comparison with earthly parents. Verse 9 to 11, he told us, Or what man is there among you? Who, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone. So he's saying, if your son asks you for a bread, are you going to give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent? If you then, being evil, being sinners, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him. So the Lord is telling us, we, earthly parents, are ready to give to our children when they ask. And the Lord used the bread and fish because these were the chief articles of food uh, for the people lived in Galilee. So, here God is saying he is our father. And the assurance of an answer to prayer is based on the fact that he is our father. That's why he, called, he asked us to call him father, our father who art in heaven. So, he treats his children better than the earthly parents treat their children. No kind parent will mock his son by answering his cry for bread with a stone. How much more God? So the Lord is telling us, people here, even the sinful parents, will not answer the cry of their children for bread with a stone even the sinful parents. So God definitely, who knows what we need and what we want and what's proper for us, he will give us what is the best for us. Not only he will give us temporal and earthly things, but most importantly, he will give us spiritual things. This verse in Luke, in Luke chapter 11, verse 13, instead of the word good things, it's written Holy Spirit. In Matthew, it's written God will give good things. But in Luke, he will give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him. Uh, Then verse 12, that is the golden rule. Therefore, whatever you want men to do to you, 
do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Many times we ask how I should handle this situation. How should I deal with this person? If you don't know the answer, put yourself in his place and ask yourself, if you are in his situation, how do you want others to deal with you? And then you will find the answer. That's why it is called the golden rule in dealing with others. As if the Lord is telling us, when you act or when you deal with others, act not from selfishness or injustice, but put yourself in the place of others and ask what you would expect of them. And then actually you will know the answer how to deal with others. And this is the law and the prophet. What does it mean? The law and the prophets aimed how to live righteous life. Righteous with God, righteous with yourself, and righteous with others. And the word righteous from the word right. How to do what's right. So, in dealing with others, many, many people come and ask, I don't know how to deal with this person. And the answer to this question, put yourself in his, in, his, in his place and ask how you want others to deal with you. And that is the answer. Verse 13 and 14. Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many who go in by it. But narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life. And there are few who find it. So actually, from verse 13 to the end of this chapter, it is the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mountain. It is actually the application for the whole sermon. So the Lord is telling them, now you know how to be righteous with God and how to be righteous with yourself and with others. But to apply this, you need to choose the narrow gate and the difficult way. If you want to enter the kingdom of God, then actually you need to find the narrow gate and the difficult way. And here the Lord was speaking from their culture because every town in Palestine was surrounded by walls and is entered by gates. And the main gates were wide with double doors closed with locks and fastened with iron bars. But there were straight gates in retired corners that are narrow, and only these gates are opened 
when you knock. So the Lord is telling us the way to heaven is narrow. It's not the wide gate and the broad way. It's not the great highway that people trade. But it is the narrow gate from which only few will go there. The way to death is broad. Multitudes are in it. It is the great highway in which people go. So what does it mean to say Broadway wide gate? When actually we want what's easy, no effort, and we go through this gate without any thought. We want to enter through gate with our sins, with our selfishness, with our pride. That's the wide gate. But the narrow gate, why the Lord said few will find it? Not because it is hard to find, but it is because the people prefer to go into the wide gate and the broad way. Many people don't want to discipline themselves. Next week, we'll start Jonah's fast, and after two more weeks, we'll start the great fast. Of course, to fast and to discipline yourself, it needs some effort from you, some asceticism. But many people prefer to enter through the wide gate and to walk through the broad way. Why I discipline myself? And they are just content to fast two weeks or three weeks from the eight weeks. Or people who choose to fast from the beginning, actually they start to plan how they please their bodies during this fast. So the principle of asceticism now does not exist in fasting. In the same way, to pray long prayers, that is a narrow gate. But many people now, they are complaining. Why our liturgy are three hours? Why we, we don't just pray for 30 minutes, one hour? Why the Agbeya is long? Why just I don't pray five minutes? And they say these things and they argue about it without realizing they, are, they actually claiming they want to go through the wide gate and the broad way. They want to choose what's convenient for them, what's easy for them. But the Lord is telling us, no. The way to heaven is the narrow. It's the narrow gate and the difficult path. And actually, many people in their rebellion against God here in America, they named some streets Broadway. And most of these streets that's named Broadway are where gambling and nightclubs and drinking. And as if they are 
rebelling clearly against God. He told us, don't walk through the Broadway. Actually, we'll have streets named Broadway. And we'll do all sins in these streets. So it is not difficult to find the narrow gate, but you need to choose this. But many of us prefer to walk in the broad way. But if they wish to leave the broad way and to go to the narrow gate, they will find it. But this requires effort and thought. St. Augustine said, what makes this gate so small to us? It is not that it is straight or narrow in itself, but because we want to enter with our pride, with our self-will, with our darling sins. Many of us have some sins dear to them. And we, we don't want to compromise these sins. We want to keep them because they are dear to me. I don't want to deny my will. I don't want to put my pride away. That's why with my pride, with my self-will, and with my darling sin, this gate will look narrow to me. From verse 15 to 20, he warned us from the false prophets. He told us, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. The word the prophet in the New Testament means anyone who teaches with authority the will of God. Anyone who teaches the will of God with authority. So the false prophet is a false teacher. Because what is the function of the prophet? The prophet declares the message from God. Let the people know the will of God. So the false prophet is the false teacher. And actually, it's interesting that after God spoke about the narrow gate and the wide gate, he spoke about the false teachers. Because usually, the false teacher, they teach you that it is not important to do any effort. The grace of God will save you, and you are not required to do any effort. Just believe, and you will be saved. They will make it too easy. So the, the false prophets, actually, they will ask people not to enter through the narrow gate to be followers of Christ. But using soothing words, flattering doctrines, they will deceive many people. That's why he told them, they will come to you in sheep's clothing. They will come with a gentle exterior, 
persuading men that the gate is not straight and the way is not narrow. And they will tell you, if you hear any preacher telling you the gate is narrow and the way is difficult, this is not the teaching of Christ. They will tell you this is not the teaching of Christ. Although that's what's written. But that is actually the teaching of the false teachers. From outside, their words are comforting. That's the sheep's clothing. But from inside, they are ravenous wolves. So, how to differentiate between a false teacher and a true teacher? The Lord told us in verse 16, you will know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit and a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. So, in order to judge, actually, you need to judge by the fruit. But I want to bring to your attention that the Lord told us, don't judge the tree by its leaves or by its flowers, but only you judge it by the fruit. Because many times the flowers may be beautiful and fragrant, but there is no fruit. Unfortunately, some of us, we judge people by the flowers, and we say, see, these flowers are beautiful. These flowers are fragrant, but not by the fruit. And the Lord actually will give us in few verses what are the flowers look like. In, 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 in verse 22, these false prophets will say to God, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name? That's a false teaching. Cast out demons in your name, that is a flower, and done many wonders in your name, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. So don't be deceived by the flowers. Some people, some teachers, they may have the flowers of doing miracles or casting out demons, but these are flowers, not the fruit. The fruit is love, peace, joy, kindness, self-control, patience, long-suffering, faithfulness, faithfulness to the doctrine, faithfulness to the teaching, faithfulness to the church. So, 
it is a very important principle how to test men, how to test an institution, how to test denominations, how to test churches. A good tree will not produce bad fruit, and bad tree will not and cannot produce good fruit. A man cannot be a saint and a sinner in the same time. And also, you can judge yourself by this principle. Do you have the fruit of the Spirit or not? If I don't have the fruit of the Spirit, then what kind of tree I am? The Lord, after he told us you need to judge by the fruit, then in verse 19 he told us, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Therefore, by their fruit you will know them. Again, the emphasis here he repeated twice, by their fruit you will know them. But in verse 19, he told us about their destiny. Uh, so, any tree that does not bear good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. So whatever is useless and evil shall finally be swept away. Verse 21. Verse 21 actually is reflection on the false teachers. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, so not everyone who prays in my name shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of, God, of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done one many wonders in your name, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Can you imagine a person after he spent all his time saying, Lord, Lord, and preaching the name of the Lord, but preaching people to enter through the wide gate and to walk through the broad way. And maybe he does some wonders in the name of the Lord. And at the judgment day, the Lord will tell them, I never knew you. I never heard about you. I never even noticed that you were teaching. So here again, the emphasis that the entrance into the kingdom of God is for those who does the will of God, those who will enter through the narrow gate. Uh, it is necessary to believe in Christ and to repent of sins and to live a holy life and to love one another to enter the kingdom of God. His will is our sanctification. He teaches us not to be hearers 
but to do who does the will of God. These people who said, Lord, Lord, and who preached, but preached false doctrine, what did they miss? They missed a faithful obedience to God. But they were deceived. They never have been true followers of Christ, although they believe they are followers of Christ. St. Augustine said, when Christ said, I never knew you, is only another way of saying, you never knew me. You never knew me. You had an image in your mind about God, and you preached this image. But you never knew me, the true God. So, in spite of all their professions, they have been evildoers in front of God. Their religion and their faith was only focusing on speaking and preaching, but again preaching false doctrine and praying to impress the people. That's why the Lord told them to depart from me, depart to where? As we read in Matthew 25, verse 41, depart to the lake of fire, which was prepared for Satan and his soldiers. So unfortunately, many are self-deceived, and we need to pray for them that God may enlighten their eyes, that God may open their eyes before it is too late for them. That's why St. Paul again spoke about the flowers and the fruit. In 1 Corinthians chapter 13, he said, even if I speak with the tongues of angels and I have the gift of prophecy and I can move mountains and actually uh, burned my body in service, but I do not have charity or a loving heart, which is the fruit. All these are flowers, but the fruit is love. So if I don't have this, all of these things would be of no avail. Then the Lord concluded the sermon with a beautiful parable. Verse 24, he said, Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat on that house, and it did not fall, for it was founded on the rock. But everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain descended, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, and it fell, and great was its fall. If you think about 
Rain falls from above, floods come from down, and winds from side. So what is that sign is this? The sign of cross. Rain from above, flood from down, and winds. So here, actually, it is a cross of uh, uh, tribulations, the hardships that we will face in our life. If you build your house on the rock, then when this cross face you, you will be strong. But if you build your house on the sand, then it will fall. The wise man built his house on the rock. What is the rock? It's Jesus. But building the house on the rock means not only hearer of a word, but a doer of the word. A doer of the word. So the man who hears and does the word of Christ is building his house on the rock. Christ is the foundation, is the rock. And everything beside Christ is sand. So anybody who is building his life on any other things, pleasure, materialism, not Christ, then he is building his house on sand. Because Christ is the only rock. And Palestine actually is a country of uh, many winds and storms. So this verse gives a picture of sign, sudden violent storm and sweeping floods, which were so common during the rainy season in Palestine. So the house founded upon the rock actually withstand all this storm. Those who hear and obey. These people also will be able to stand in the judgment day. They will not fall down on the judgment day. But everyone knows how transitory and shifting is the sandy foundation, then he will never build his house on the sand. Some people build their hopes upon worldly prosperity and pleasures. So the Lord made it very clear, it is not the man who hears or only believes the saying of Christ that built his house on the rock, but those who actually do them, those who do them, not only hearing and believing, but doing them. So it is an awesome conclusion to a wonderful sermon. Last two verses of the chapter, verse 28 and 29. And so it was when Jesus had ended these sayings that the people were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. No wonder they were astonished. The whole world until today still wonders when they read or study the sermon. Even people from other religions, when they read the sermon, they still are astonished. In all languages, there isn't 
any sermon to be found that can be compared with this sermon in its purity, truth, beauty, and dignity. Can you imagine if every person in the world obeyed this sermon, how peaceful the world would be? If every member in the family obeyed this sermon, how this family will be peaceful and holy? If every member in the church obeyed and followed the teaching in this sermon, how the church would be beautiful? People never heard the law was defined in such a manner. They never heard the secret, the secret system of morality in such a way that actually seeks inner sanctification before outer sanctification. They never heard the teaching so clear and also with authority as they heard the Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, the scribes and the Pharisees were teaching, but they did not feel the authority in their teaching. Because the Lord spoke not as a man, with human doubts, with limitation, but as the incarnated Son of God. He is the Son of God. And when he spoke, he spoke with divine authority, not hesitating, not stumbling, like the scribes and the Pharisees, the interpre in interpreters of the scripture. So this is a conclusion of the Sermon on the Mountain, the most pure, holy, profound, uplifting, inspiring uh, sermon that nobody actually heard like this sermon and it is amazingly simple that even a young child can apprehend it and a philosopher will look at it with astonishment. Glory be to God forever and ever. Amen.